Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Hello everyone, this is another abridged interview from the Darkened Hour podcast. Adam Fitzgerald and I were speaking with David Chandler, who is one of the principal physicists proposing a controlled demolition took place at the Twin Towers on September 11th. I spent time collating all the criticisms I could find of David's work and attempted to put them to him. David attempted to talk us through these issues in a way that we, as non-physicists, could understand. The full interview is over two hours long, and we go on to talk about the nature of the 9-11 Truth Movement. There's a link to it in the info box. I wanted to start by finding out a little more about David's background, so here he is explaining how he first came to see the United States as an imperial power. I've had a, I had a series of experiences that sort of put me open to this kind of thing. When I was in high school, even, uh, I had to do a book report on some random thing in a social studies class, and I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. So I w wandered through the library, and there was a set of books there that were the kind of, they're all bound exactly the same, you know, a match set, and it looked like they'd never, ever, ever been taken off the shelf. So I just picked one at random, and it was about, um, it was a history, and it was about Central America. And it was about the, um, well, back at the Spanish-American War and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. the gunboat diplomacy, and how we got Panama, and it talked about Nicaragua. It just really, I mean, it was like not written, this was not a piece of history that was written for high school students. It was all, you know, pablum that was all mushed down and, and so forth. This was sort of like the real deal. And it really shocked me. And that just sort of, that's, I think that's the first time I literally realized, uh, you know, this isn't the type of thing that I've been taught that we're supposed to be about, that we're, put, we're being bullies in the world. So that was sort of uh, in the backdrop, and I've had a couple other experiences like that. But then when I was in um, Southern California in the 80s, um, I was actually a, a part of a, a church group that uh, started taking in refugees as part of the sanctuary movement. And uh, actually what happened was there was a, there was a, I don't know how much detail you want, but the, I, there, there was a, a, some refugees that came in and the, I went to the pastor and I said, we're not doing anything for these people. They're just sort of sitting there. And what's, what are we supposed to be doing to help them? You know, shouldn't we help them get on their own feet and all that kind of thing? He said, I think you should do that. <laughs> and sort of, you know, so I got involved like, and so forth. And so that's, so I got personally involved with these people from Central America and recognized, I mean, heard their stories firsthand the woman that we first took in was incredibly traumatized, and you could just see it all over. She gave us her a false name at first and all sorts of things like that. So it was, and she had a, a child while she was in prison. She was never charged with anything. All of the women in her prison were released at one point uh, due to the work of Amnesty International, and they immediately started showing up dead because the death squads were out gunning them down. And she got refuge in a church that got her smuggled in up to the U.S. That family, we eventually got asylum in Canada because the U.S. was routinely just denying all these asylum applications. So that was the kind of experience that I had to calibrate what, 
what you read in the papers versus uh, seeing directly firsthand what was really going on. So I was in a, in a state where I recognized that uh, the US foreign policy is not what they teach you in high school, you know? So that was my pre precursor there. So when 9-11 happened, it was not like I could, there was no hurdle for me. There's a lot of people who they had to go through a big hurdle to get to where they could accept it. Maybe somebody in the US government did something bad, but I didn't have that kind of hurdle because I'd had these preliminary experiences like that. So yeah. I was just more looking at it objectively. I was, uh, I was very skeptical of some of the early stuff I heard. And the first time I heard that people thought that they would use explosives and all that, my question was, how do they know? Or what's the evidence? And so forth. And then I saw these squibs and so forth on some videos. But then I so thought, how do we know that's not, that stuff's not Photoshopped? And I started looking for confirming videos and I sort of realized they're all over the place, that they're not, you know, there's all kinds of video evidence that this is actually real. And so all that kind of thing just started to grow on me. And then, but anyway, so the point where I finally engaged is I, I started giving some uh, talks to some local groups uh, like Unitarian Church and various groups like that that were open to this. And uh, just based on my own mostly internet research and so forth. But then I got an opportunity to give a, a talk at a physics conference. It was the uh, American Association of Physics Teachers. And there was a group that met at Occidental College in Southern California every year for physics day. And I asked the guy, could I give a talk on this? And, and he said, sure. And so I I had a few months to prepare, so I thought, well, this is a different kind of audience. I ought to have something more substantive. So I got in and started trying to uh, take some measurements so that I could, you know, what can you know based on what you see in these videos? And, uh, and that's where I realized uh, how fast these buildings came down and how fast stuff was shooting out the sides. I just based, I had a tool which at that time was sort of primitive kind of a tool called physics toolkit. I have a better one that I've used since then, but uh, it could actually, you could put markers on videos and track them and uh, take measurements that way. And so I came up with a whole set of these measurements that I presented to this group and I, I put them on YouTube and that's where uh, somebody from AE uh, contacted me and invited me onto their team at that point because they saw okay. the stuff I put up there. Okay, maybe I can ask you to just go over that in, in a bit more detail. Just first, just I, I didn't know actually that part of your biography that you'd read about um, the Spanish-American War and the invasion of the Philippines. And what's interesting about that is that it all starts with the explosion of the USS Maine, right? So you have this very dodgy um, incident, which was clearly we can say at the very least lied about. Um, yeah that kicks off a war. And that, interestingly, is one of the things when I was looking for historical context for 9-11, that's like an incident. Oh, yeah, you have like, you have a, a, a government that wants to go, embark on foreign wars, but it can't get the people on side. And then there's an incident. And the incident is not as it is first presented with the media that's ready to go. So I think it's an interesting parallel. Um, what, what I'd like to ask there from you, okay, so, when you see incidents like this happen, it's not hard for you to um, see the criminal nature of 
the US government, say, because of your experience. Um, but as a physicist, it's not the case that you just looked at the towers coming down and went, oh, no way, like moving through the path of most resistance, absolutely impossible. There was a journey for you to get from that initial seeing um, to being convinced. And I wonder, uh, you go back and forth a lot in your own mind um, there about the you know thinking oh it can't be but this is impossible and so on. and i also wonder um do you recall when you saw building seven collapse for the first time because i i don't actually recall when i saw that for the first time and people were already talking about it a lot by the time i did and um, so it was building seven kind of immediately obvious to you that there's something fishy about this yeah okay let me back up a little bit in that on the day of 9 11 i was i i was teaching i I got up, I had my computer on, and I saw the smoke coming out of the towers, and I called my wife and said, I better turn on the TV, it looks like it's gonna be a big news day. And so, and I went to school, and the first comment I made to a like-minded teacher there was, well, looks like the chickens have come home to roost. So that was my only, that was my original response. During the day, a lot of teachers had the television sets on all day, and so, so I particular, I didn't have, the inclination to do that because I figured, well, whatever happened, we're going to know about it in more detail later. And this is the type of thing they're just going to cycle infinitely, which is what they did. But uh, so I didn't have the TV on, but this kid comes, comes in the hallway and says, a building fell down. And then a few minutes later, the other building fell down. And it was like, no way. How can that be? So that was my initial, initial response was that how do you have steel frame buildings collapse due to having a hole poked in them. And so that didn't make any sense to me. So I was glued to the television set and I heard fairly early on that there was gonna be a you know, program on Nova that was supposed to explain how the towers came down. So I was very intrigued waiting to see this Nova program, which we now know is total bullshit. I don't know if I, what your audience is here. Okay, That's but anyway. But at the time, that was like, oh, I mean, I was, I was very curious about how this could happen. And so I was just taking it all in. And I didn't particularly come at it from a, a critical point of view, other than I was just uh, trying to understand it a little bit. But I didn't really get involved in uh, the whole issue. I, I think I was aware at some point, I heard something where Stephen Jones a little TV blip about him. And it wasn't very, it was just maybe a 10 second little thing on a news program. And then I heard later about David Ray Griffin and uh, the, the claims that it was explosives and this type of thing. But um, none of that really, I mean, I just sort of filed that away. But then my sister went to a, a conference. Um, she lived in Santa Barbara and I don't know what the connections are, but uh, she's a friend of David Ray Griffin's wife and so forth. So, but uh, she she went to this conference and came back with a video and some books and said, "You got to look into this." And so I hadn't uh, really dug into it. But when I watched the videos, I was looking at how the the North Tower was so explosive and how it went sideways. And the first thing I did. I literally, by freeze framing the video, I was able to measure the, uh, a big chunk that went all the way across the street and looked like it hit a building across the street. But I think it actually went behind the building. But uh, I took that 
uh, projectile. And I was, used, I was able to use that to estimate that it was moving horizontally at about 60 miles an hour, which is like, whoa. I mean, I don't know if that proves anything, but it surely is suggestive that something very strange is happening, that this big chunk of stuff is gonna go 60 miles an hour horizontally. So that was where I started digging my teeth in. I discovered Jim Hoffman's website and uh, went from there. So I don't know how much I've answered your question or wandered off, but- No, I think, I think pretty thoroughly, I think that's an enlightening account. Adam, do you have any, anything at this point? No, I'm not, not, not yet. Okay, well, um, maybe we'll move into some of the physics questions then that I, I've been looking at, we've been talking about Adam, and I apologize to the audience for the, uh, the limit of the questioner's knowledge here. We've, we've done our best of this, but we, we are principally coming from the, the geopolitical area when we looked at 9-11. Um, it's probably a stretch to say I'm coming from any area, but Adam's been doing all this research over the years in the geopolitics, and yet there's this other area, of course, that just can't be ignored. Um, so that's why we wanted to have this conversation. Um, what we find, I suppose, from not having the, like that much physics knowledge beyond my fairly basic high school education is that it gets kind of deadlocked, okay, because you have... Physicist A saying one thing, physicist B saying another, and we look at it, well, yeah, I don't really know. So I suppose- Can I comment on that? Yeah, please do. Well, you have physicists saying one thing and you have total BS coming from the other side, and it's just that you don't know how to filter it out. Exactly, well, that, that I mean, it's, it's absolutely clear anyone could say that one side is BS, right? Because both sides are saying, oh, this, that, that's what both sides are saying, that the other side is BS, but, that's exactly what we lack, like the, the ability to filter. So I think in doing this, um, we're, we're trying to find a way, not just, you know, can, if I devoted my life to getting a physics degree, could I figure this stuff out? But how can the average person putting in a reasonable amount of time feel like they're making headway in, in understanding this? Um, so any, any comments on that, David? But there's a few themes that seem to come up repeatedly, okay? Um, like one of the core, digressions or divergences I find in, in the two camps is whether the towers one and two fell onto the supports, the central beams beneath them, or whether they fell off the beams. And when I look at the videos and try and visualize it both ways, um, in my own mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know, actually, yeah, if it did fall off the beams, you've got that weight, apparently it's about the, the top section of the North Tower is the equivalent of the Titanic or something. And if it falls onto the floor and not onto the main supporting beams, I can see that the floor wouldn't have enough strength in it to support that weight. And the next floor is not going to, and the next floor. Is, so when I look at it, it's like, yeah, that, that's plausible to me. And then also what David Chandler and Tony Sambotti are saying, if it fell onto the central pillars, it can't compress them. It can't. So that makes sense from that perspective. So. And that's one of the uh, the critiques that we've come across again and again. So I think you know what I'm talking about. I've got you. I've sort of bumbled my way into the ballpark of the question. So maybe you could pick it up from there. Let me back it up and give you some background on this. So I know exactly where that question's coming from. And so don't you know? Yeah. So all right. Um, the whole analysis of how the tower came down. Uh, you have to trace it back to Byzantium 
uh, Zdenek Bazand, or however you say his name. It sounds like an Eastern European name of some sort. And I don't claim to know how to present, pronounce it. But anyway, um, he's a civil engineering professor at Northwestern University. He came out with this analysis of how the tower came down naturally. Uh, and he came out with this literally, I think it's one or two days, like two days after 9-11. And he submitted it for publication. It got published later in 2001 or the beginning of 2002. And then he's done a few revisions on that. But he basically has this simplistic model that has all kinds of problems with it. But it had the top section of, I mean, it's just a very, it's a one-dimensional model. In other words, he's not taking the beams or girders or anything like that into account. And he has the top section coming down, crushing down the bottom section. And the top section he shows coming all the way down, crushing the top, crushing the bottom section all the way to the rubble pile before it crushes itself. Okay, so you have the crush down, I mean, crush down followed by crush up is the way, that's his words, okay. So uh, NIST wanted to, apparently, I wanted to avoid any analysis of the actual fall of the building because it's a huge rat's nest and they were going to get into all kinds of trouble if they tried to, uh, you know, try to make that go away. And so rather than engage in it, they basically just accepted Byzant's analysis as though it was gospel. And it's like, it's just full of holes. Like you have, all right, let me answer your specific question. So your specific question, if you start, all right, all right, I got to, okay, I'm going to back up again. Mm -hmm. I did a response to Byzant's analysis uh, that I used his model and it's where I have the top block and the bottom block, and I'm just treating them as blocks the same way he did. And I'm, I'm showing that if you have the top block and if you add in the piece of data that he totally ignores, the top block accelerates downward the entire time it's visible. There's a constantly downward acceleration the whole time. Now, I pondered that, I measured it, and it's not free fall, okay? But it's downward acceleration. It turns out it's two thirds of free fall. And I just sort of tumbled that around in my brain. And I thought, then I said, so what's, what are the implications of accelerating downward at something less than free fall? And I did a little analysis of that, which is a standard thing you do in a physics analysis. It's called doing a free body diagram. And so if you have the block and you figure, okay, if it's accelerating downward, you have an upward and a downward force. If it's accelerating downward, the downward force has to be stronger because it has to accelerate in the direction of the net force. I don't know if you can understand that so far. I'm I hanging on. I want to finish my argument here, but am I too far off track yet? I, I so think I've got forces that produce accelerations. Yep. Excuse me. I missed what you said. Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging on. I have some questions in a minute. That's fine. Okay. Doing okay so far. Well, let me finish this whole yep. statement then. You have two basic kinds of forces, one down due to gravity, one up due to resistance from the bottom section of the building. And the fact that it's accelerating downward is key because that tells you that the downward force due to gravity is stronger than the upward force. Otherwise, it wouldn't accelerate downward, mm -hmm. which is another way of saying 
the resistive force is less than the weight of the building, the weight of the top section of the building. Okay, because it has to be less than the gravitational force and the gravitational force is that thing's weight. All right, so therefore, it's not, you know, one of the things uh, Dave Thomas says all the time, well, there's gonna be this dynamic load. If something is falling, you get this extra force. That's what's gonna crush the columns. But it's not there. There is no dynamic load because if there's a dynamic load, you're exerting a greater force than the weight of, of uh, the top section. If you take a hammer and hit a nail, how come the nail goes into the wood? If you just take the hammerhead and set it on the nail, it's not going anywhere. In order to drive the nail, you have to get it moving. And when it hits the nail, it's taking the momentum that it had when you brought the hammer down. And it's converting that momentum into this excess force, which is what he's talking about as a dynamic load. All right. And so if you have a dynamic load, you have to be giving up momentum in order to gain this excess force, okay? But there is no excess force because it's accelerating downward. So what you're saying is you should see a jolt and then a fall That's and a right. jolt it's, if it was yeah. crushing the building. Okay. Yeah, if you have, if you actually, I have videos of this. If you take a hammer and you hit a nail, the hammerhead stops. In fact, that's mm. why you have to hit it repeatedly, right? And I have another little video I put in some of my stuff. I actually uh, found a video, a nice video clip of a pile driver because they talk about the top section acting like a pile driver. Well, how does a pile driver act? That goes thump, thump, thump. And they're driving this big thing into the ground, right? That's what piling is like for piers and all that. All right. And so the thing is that it's taking momentum by dropping this thing, giving it speed, mass going at a certain speed, mass times velocity, that gives you momentum. And by hitting it, you're giving up that momentum. You're transferring that momentum into something called an impulse, which is force times time. So anyway, so you're transferring momentum into providing this excess force, okay? But if you don't give up any momentum, there's no excess force. And if you look at the tower, how would, it, how would you see if it's giving up momentum? It would be slowing down. Right. You know, in order to give up momentum, you would see it slowing down. But it never slows down. It's accelerating downward the entire time. It never gives up its velocity. So it's never giving up any momentum. So it's not producing an excess force. It's not crushing anything. Okay. And that is proof right there that it's uh, not destroying the building. It's falling into a building that's been pre-pulverized. So you've enabled this thing to accelerate down into the rubble because you've knocked out the stuff under it by other means. That's the simple okay. physics of it. A couple of... Um counterpoints I'll put as well as I can to that. The one criticism I heard was that the frame rate on David Chandler's camera isn't high enough. Okay. And You're talking Dave Thomas. Missing... Hi Dave, you're out there. I'm talking to you. All right, go ahead. He's um, he's missing the jolts. He's not and actually the real graph would wouldn't look like this straight line of acceleration. It would look like jolt, 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 jolt yeah. all the way. 
Can I talk and about that? Can I, can I, I'll, I'll, I'll make, oh, I'll put ahead. a small question in, right? And the, the building is falling around the central spire and that's why you see, um, I think it's on the North Tower, you see at the end, there's still a large section of the spire left that then falls over. So the floors themselves aren't putting up any substantial resistance. So you're only seeing this little bit of deceleration each time. Please go ahead. You're not seeing any deceleration. Anyway, let me, let me comment. Um, okay, there's a couple of things. All right, I lost my track a little bit. Um, the micro jolts, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things Dave Thomas is trying to say is that I'm looking at the average decelerate, I mean, the average motion of the building. I'm not looking at little millisecond by millisecond, all right? Mm -hmm. Picture this. The, the floor is an acre. You have an, a floor that's an acre in size, and you're expecting me to believe that that whole thing is going to somehow, in some kind of a coherent, coordinated manner, have these kinds of motions that are resolvable down to the millisecond. This is going to be, this is like a whole huge pile of stuff coming down, and you're not, and you're telling me that it's basically alternating between very large forces for instantaneous little moments interspersed with free fall in between. That's what Dave Thomas is trying to present. It's ludicrous. Okay, so what you're actually measuring is the bulk behavior of the building. So now I'm not arguing it on the basis of looking at the strengths of the individual columns and girders and stuff like that. Tony Zambodi and a couple of these other guys Hmm. have done some analysis that approaches it at that level. I'm basically, that whole argument that I was presenting, I'm actually adopting Byzant's model in order to show how Byzant's model is flawed. And then they're critiquing me for adopting Byzant's model. I mean, that's sort of weird. So I I'm, I'm recognize it's a limited model. It's a one-dimensional thing. I'm just treating it like a block and showing that if you take Byzant's model and you account for the fact that it is, in fact, accelerating downward, that you have a big problem. Now, so the micro jolt thing is, I mean, Tony Zambodi did an analysis of that micro jolt thing on another scale. And so I refer you, I have links to a number of these articles in my website. Let me put that out there, 911speakout.org. And if you go over to the tab in the menu that has articles and links, uh, you'll find some of these other articles. And I have, just do a search there on Tony Zambodi and you'll see the articles that he's written. So my work and his work, I feel are sort of complementary. Mm -hmm. In fact, his work on the missing joke is almost exactly the same as my work, except we came at it from different ends and met in the middle. Okay, so I sort of developed mine independently of his, but when I finished, I realized, oh, I could explain my thing by looking at his thing, all right? So those uh, go very hand in hand. But he's also done a lot of actual, uh, like looking at the loads and the way the columns buckle and all those kinds of issues, which is not like a one-dimensional model anymore, but he's also done that. And um, in fact, their conclusion was that if you actually got the, the, the building somehow started the way NIST claims it did, the, the collapse would be arrested within one floor. 
So that's the, their conclusions. But that's a more that's a more uh, engineering model approach to the way the the structure would have responded. Okay. So I really recommend if anybody, if any of your listeners have science and engineering background, which I'm not everybody does, but you know, in this population, there's a whole bunch of people who do, and I would re recommend that they. I'm basically giving you the, the overview picture and Tony's looking at the micro view picture. I'm gonna come back to one of the other things you're saying though, besides this whole micro jolt idea, which doesn't make, it's not even plausible on the surface. But the other thing is about the columns, whether they collide. So in other words, if you wanna take the, the one dimensional model of two blocks hitting each other, which is what Bazant started with and then what I am using, and if you want to then get from there into here's individual columns and how is this going to happen, the problem Bazant was dealing with is the, the pancaking of floors question that they originally put out as the explanation, it doesn't hold water because the, the columns in the center of the building are like a building within a building. They're very solid and substantial. And if you basically had the floors pancaking down, you'd see the central column left over afterwards, all right? Uh, there's a few straggler columns, but that's not the same thing. We have a massive central core building within a building, which had to be destroyed in order for it to come down the way we saw. And in order for that to happen, you have to stress the columns. You have to make them buckle. You have to somehow crush them, okay? and so Bazant was correctly trying to say, we need to get those columns crushed. And his model was trying to explain how that could happen. And okay, so now they come back and say, well, maybe it couldn't happen because of the alignment. Okay, so we're basically defending our use of Bazant's model and refuting Bazant. That's what's going on here. But if, but look at, so one thing is that if you actually look at the videos, uh, somebody is saying, well, it tips, it's, it's tilted and all that. Well, the, the major, there's about a tilt within one to two degrees initially. And then it's not until it's crushed down a ways that the tilt goes as far as like eight degrees or something. Uh, if you take some videos as seen from the east side and you look at the, at the mast on the top of the North Tower, it starts downward and then only gradually starts to tip. And so the views that are seen from the north, it's tipping away from us. And so it's not easy to see that it's tipping at all. But if you see it from the east, you can see there is some tipping. So it's tipping southward, and, uh, but it's very small initially. So when the, when the collapse was starting, there's none of this uh, tilting going on very noticeably. And uh, Tony rightly says, no, they're not gonna be missing each other, but let's pretend they did, all right? If you, you have this central core packet of columns, like 47 columns that are very heavily braced, okay? There's sort of a rectangular bracing that holds them together as a unit. And if you have the two sections, say that you rotate it or something so that all these columns miss, and they go down, all of that bracing is gonna impact each other. So it's not, I'm not talking about the floors. The bracing in the central core column structure 
is going to interact and you're going to be tearing up the bracing of both the underlying structure and the falling structure simultaneously. So by the time you've torn up the bracing for 12 floors below it, the 12 floors above it are going to be gone. And so all, what you all have at that point is just this loose collection of material and you don't have a coherent block at all at that point, just from that argument alone. So if you had the columns missing each other, um, you don't, you basically have the destruction of the falling block uh, right there. <clears throat> There's more okay, to be said. That, well, that, question. That, that's a very enlightening answer. Thank you. And it, you know, it's sort of exactly in line with where I was going in the questioning. Um, perhaps, yeah, you could help us understand like this. I mean, actually, my sort of first memory of you was seeing you on the um, the long architects and engineers documentary, and being struck by what you were saying about uh, the the top section of the towers couldn't crush that below because um, forces are equal and opposite. So the floor above crushes the floor beneath, and so on and so on until it's eradicated itself. Could you help us? understand how uh, a physicist might look at the, the physics of a collapsing object when it's crushed and what damage that can then do, okay? Because, um, for example, um, one video that I've seen circled around is that of a digger bucket lifting up about four ton of water and dropping it on a car, and the car is completely crushed, okay? Because, but water's not connected at any point, but it's together enough, it's delivering, I suppose it's delivering enough momentum or kinetic energy in a single instance that whacks to, to do that, right? And you know, I was saying to Adam before we started, you know, if I was gonna have a thousand apples dropped on my head, I'd prefer that they were loose than in a crate. But I imagine that having a thousand apples dropped on one's head is not like having one apple dropped on at 10 second intervals, because some apples are gonna be hitting others and it's gonna transfer more momentum than, than if they were dropped individually. So how do you look at that from a physics point and do sort of calculate what a broken up falling mass um, would be able to do to a structure beneath it. Right. Okay. All right, look at that instance of dumping. The, I looked at that video you sent me. Mm -hmm. It shows like a, a, a lift bucket and they dump this water as a, some, I don't know how many tons did you say? I a think bunch of tons four. of water. Huh? I think it was four tons. Okay, four tons of water and they dump it on a car and it crushes the car, okay? So number one, the, the structure of the building is not like the street metal structure of a car, mm. first of all. That's just one little point to get that out of the way. But the other point is this, is that that water is acting, all right, what creates the force, here comes some physics, the force that you get is equal to the rate of change of momentum. So if you have a bunch of momentum, see how much momentum is getting stopped okay so if you have falling water it has momentum if it hits a plate it no longer has momentum right mm -hmm. so you've given up the momentum and so the rate at which you're giving up momentum is a measure of how much force and there's another example of this i was actually i'm writing a physics course by the way as we speak for homeschoolers so if anybody wants to educate themselves in in physics a self-taught course write to me. It won't be ready till next fall, but uh, uh, you, you yourself can learn some physics. Okay. Okay. 
But the point is, I was using this as an example. If you take a fire hose, all right, you get a certain, you has a flow of water, but it's a certain amount of mass per second that comes out of that hose. And uh, then it, say it hits a plate, all right? And that fire hose hitting the plate, it's going from having momentum to no momentum, all right? And so the rate of change, how much momentum is given up per second, that rate of change of momentum is going to be equal to the force that's delivered on the plate. So you can calculate, here's a fire hose hitting a plate, how much force, how many pounds of force are going to be felt there by the plate. And I used this as an example. In Birmingham, during the civil rights uh, era, they used fire hoses on these protesters. And you see protesters being knocked down, being pushed down the street. There's one instance where the, a girl is thrown over a car. I mean, this is a lot of force being delivered by a fire hose. So it's because the water that's coming out, no, it's not coherent with bolts and nuts and bolted together, it's, but it's all acting so that overall, there's a certain amount of momentum that's being dissipated and it's being converted into this force. And so the force that these people are feeling is because of the momentum of all that water hitting them. If you've ever been knocked over by a, if you go in, in the surf and here's a wave, you weren't looking and here's this wave and it hits you, it re you really feel that lots of force delivered by a, a wave, okay? Okay, anyway, the point though is just because it's water, you can look at how much momentum is, uh, rate of change of momentum is gonna equal the force. Now, if you have a crate of apples, all of that momentum is gonna be more or less simultaneous within the time it takes for that crate to break up, right? Uh, and so it's a very short period of time. So the rate of change of momentum is very high because the rate is how much momentum divided by how much time. And so if you have it happening very quickly, it's a large force. If you pour a bunch of apples, you're spreading something that was a fraction of a second of impact into several seconds of impact. And therefore the force is proportionately reduced. The rate of change, of the rate of delivery of the momentum has been reduced because you've spread it out over time. And so a bunch of loose material is not going to deliver the same force as though you have it all bundled up coherently, all right? So a coherent force will deliver a stronger, a coherent impact will deliver a stronger force than um, the rain coming down, all right? Rain coming down has never crushed my car, all right? But boom, take all of that, uh, water delivered at once, yeah, it could, because lots of momentum was delivered simultaneously. So uh, how do we get back to the, the towers? understandable to your non-physics mind at this point. I'm totally with you on that. How do we relate it to the tower coming down in assessing okay. whether the after it, it's happened, it okay. still has enough energy? Okay, don't use energy and momentum in the same breath, please. Right. <laughs> okay, we can talk about the differences. Okay, did any, I'm being the teacher here. Okay, um, in the case of um, uh, the argument that's flying back and forth here, is they're saying, oh, well, you know, the, we're saying that if you basically break up the top section, it can't continue to crush the bottom. 
because now you have a bunch of loose material, right? Whereas if you had a top block that you're envisioning as being a coherent block, yeah, you can envision that doing some crushing if you have it moving fast enough and so forth, all right? And so the fact that you break it up the top section, you're turning a crate of apples into individual apples. And so you're going a bunch of impacts that take time rather than boom, where everything is working together. And therefore the rate at which the, the momentum is being delivered is tremendously reduced. So yeah, loose material can't do the same job of crushing. You need to crush those columns to be able to destroy the building. That was the thing Bazant was trying to wave his hands and tried to do. You can't crush the columns unless you have this coherent force crushing the columns. And by the way, it's going to decelerate the top section as it does it. So it, it doesn't work. His model doesn't work, but uh, you definitely can't do it with a bunch of loose debris. And so they're trying to say, well, it doesn't matter if it's together or not, it still has weight, it's still going to crush it. Well, no, it doesn't, because it's the rate at which, you know. It, yep. Why is a bowling ball falling on your foot going to hurt more than dumping a, dumping a bunch of marbles on your foot? T totally get it, yeah. You got the picture? Totally. It's because totally it's a coherent, yeah. all at once, kind of a delivery of all this impact. Thanks for listening, everyone. As I mentioned, a link to the full interview is available in the info box. We are totally open to having someone on who occupies a contrary position to David in the hope that through this contrast, we may come to greater clarity on the issue. So watch this space.